0: Side quest accepted. I do have to ask, by the way, so Death Must Die, was that by design for you guys? Were you trying to like get a shock factor so you could bring in more people or like what was the concept behind the name of the game?
1: The name was initially just a placeholder because um, mm-hmm. whenever we're starting a project, I just, I got to create the REPL, so I just make up a placeholder name. It, I, I usually want it to be catchy and this one it just came to me. And then we when we had to set on the actual name of the game because we were making a Steam page, Mm-hmm. We kind of just didn't come up with anything better. So it's kind of stuck. That's fair. I mean, it, it's, it's catchy, it has a call to action, memorable. Some people don't like it, but uh, girls on you, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, I can't imagine you wouldn't like it because as soon as you see it, it pops out. It's like, I don't know. When I was scrolling through Steam, I mean, it was it was definitely one of the titles that like, jumped out to me. I was like, oh, I got to click on that and see what it's all about. And here we are. So, I mean, no, it, it was definitely a, worked. Yeah, it was a good choice. It was a yeah. good choice. <laughs> When you guys made your Steam page, did you make it like super early? Or did you make it later down the road? What was your strategy there? Because I mean, you already had Uh, the
1: game out fairly early. Because so this game is kind of in development uh, from the start of this year. And I think we had the Steam page out around March or something. Oh, wow! because I I know it's good to have your Steam page out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. There's no downside to having your Steam page up early, because even if you're not marketing it, it's just passive wish lists.
0: Yeah, agreed. So you guys started this project like early, early this year? So you've been working on it, what, for about
1: seven and a half, eight months now? Something like that, yeah. Uh, There was a bit of pre-production before that, I think one or two months. Uh, But yeah, heavy development about the start of
0: this year. Is that by design? Do you try to go into a project and you're like, we got to get it done by X amount of time so we can move on to the next thing? Or because I know with your first game, you had said that
1: you kind of tried to keep that to a minimum with development as well. So is that by design for you guys? Well, I think I think most people that start projects, especially if it's not like a side hobby project. If you're like, mm-hmm. we're going to make this commercial. We want to sell this. You kind yeah. of have a vague idea of how long you want to take. Because if nothing else, you have like money, like it's savings yeah. or a budget or something like this is our second game. So I'm mm-hmm. saying usually, but yeah, like usually we have some vague idea of how long we want the project to take. I think we're kind of strict with that, because uh, we haven't worked with a publisher so far, so we kind of got to watch ourselves that we, we don't overscope. Yeah. Uh, with the first game, we did overscope a bit, but it's like by by game development standards, it's nothing. It's like We were planning on doing it, I think, in seven, six months, and then we, it mm. took like nine or eight i don't, I don't
0: know that no. is very i mean that's like being very strict in game development standards most of the time people say like six yeah. months and then like a year and a half there later they're like well you know there's some things that got added on so i mean yeah that, that's that's impressive
1: you i get- think there's a there's a conundrum there because you kind of like it's one of those things that you gotta balance well because on the one side there is a benefit to taking a long ass time to make a game and mm-hmm. it's that a lot of the really good indie games, they think take a long ass time. Like if mm. you look at, just off the top of my head, let's say, uh, Return of the Obra Dinn, uh, Sarju Valley, Hollow Knight, like all these games took years and years. Uh, True. And in a lot of cases, the developers kind of, I know for your for Obra Dinn, Lucas Pope just planned to make that game at like, uh, I think, six months. And then it mm. took him four years. So, but if he didn't always, take yeah. those four years, it wouldn't be a good game, I think, because it's, it's just the kind of game where it takes a lot of experimentation and super polished, like super well done. So, yeah, there are benefits yeah. to being less strict with yourself. You're right. But I think
0: because um, <clears throat> you guys did game jams before this, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the developer who did Sucker for Love, which is like it went bonkers like people went crazy over that game I think it was last year he did um, game jams as well and he pushed his title out I think and don't quote me on it but I think it was a couple months as well like it was under a year I believe or like just over it so he pushed pretty hard as well so maybe I mean obviously yes every developer works differently so sometimes you know you want to take years and years sometimes you want to take a couple months but I do think it kind of it is impacted by how you enter the industry and the standards you kind of evolve around with your, if you're in a game jam, there's pressure to push something out fast. If you're in, you know, just a solo dev on your own or a small team, then maybe you're focused on like the quality and you're thinking about all these little details and like then it starts growing and growing. So like, it, I don't know, maybe different mindsets, different you know environments, whatever it is. But I mean, whatever it Actually, takes. It w-
1: when you it. say it like that, I think like my general advice uh, would be like for developers at least for developers that would need it is I think mm-hmm. when you're kind of new and starting out shorter projects are strictly better because mm-hmm. someone who's making their first game like a four-year project you're going to make a lot of mistakes at the start of that project that you're going mm-hmm. to be dragging on for a long time and I don't think you probably have that good of a game in the end because you kind of you get your lessons from the project and then it's the best to kind of wrap it up and move on to the next one mm-hmm. so m- maybe like you're right that like on the game, the good thing about a game jam is, especially when you're inexperienced, it kind of forces you to put something out. Yeah. And being strict with yourself and having a short time frame and like following it can can really help. A, I think a beginner developer, such as ourselves, right? Because I, I don't think taking like four years to our previous game would have made it that much better of a game. I think we kind of exhausted what we could do with it, took our lessons, and moved on. I have to ask, so you started out with a visual novel and now you're in a roguelite. So w- what
0: was the decision making there, right? Because that is a big jump. Like there's a lot of differences between visual novels and roguelites. Was it because like visual novels were kind of in at the time or was it just like, we want to make a game and this is the first idea that we had? What was the thought there?
1: When we brainstorm, we kind of just have like, we, we don't really lean to, towards specific genres that much. Mm-hmm. So when we were like brainstorming, I remember for the previous game, like on paper we were talking like a boomer shooter, mm-hmm. roguelike, card game VN, Tower Defense, like there was it was all over the place. So I, yeah. I don't think we kind of analyzed the market or anything. We just liked the pitch of the game because the idea was card game plus visual novel, where we try to capture that sense of being a kid and playing Magic the Gathering in your local club. Mm, I got so it. that just sounded really nice to so us. Sounded like something we can do in a short time. We kind of need towards that. We, by the way, in this case, actually, it's it's weird because we don't play that many visual novels. <laughs> I've I've played like maybe before Kami Fudo. i would played like two visual novels in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, which was by the way. One, so <laughs> I'm in the same yeah. boat. <laughs> It's, that's a very good decision making on our end because obviously, if you if you're going into a genre, it's good to understand it. Like if you're going to design something, mm-hmm. number one stop is go play as many games in that genre as you can and analyze it, right? And we kind of really underestimated what it takes to make a visual novel because, mm-hmm. like, looking at it from the outside, it's like oh, well, it's just it's just a book and you have portraits and yeah. so on. But so much of that game's development was just like directing all of the scenes because we have like swipe animations for the characters mm-hmm. moving out of scene yeah. sound effects because like I was the guy playing in all the sound effects and mm-hmm. I'll tell you it takes so, so much time. I didn't really <laughs> do a good job. I don't think I did a good job, but I, I tried and it took mm-hmm. so much time. Especially yeah. if you have a big visual novel like forty thousand words or fifty thousand words, it's insane. I know visual novels, like a lot of people
0: look at them and they're like, Well, it's probably like the easiest game to make and when reality there's so much production behind it and there's so much that goes into it, I mean it's it's a massive undertaking. And visual novels I've always felt they have a stigma that goes along with them so a lot of developers steer away from them because of that as well so there's like layers on top of layers for why you would pick that specific i guess genre in itself and you guys were like just let's go for it you know what it's gonna work out yeah. Sounds, sounds cool. <laughs> yeah but i mean you know it was your first game and ultimately it led you to this project so there's there's always a reason right from a technical standpoint though i mean visual novel there's not a lot of character movements i mean the way you approach the game engine behind that to this game i mean everything i would imagine is different right when you're moving from that to to where you are
1: now like speaking from a programmers perspective um Mm -hmm. like from the previous game i would say most of my technical work wasn't in the visual novel parts because like you said that's more art content directing like sound effect work Uh, it was the card game because i can be fooled as a card game plus visual novel and the card game actually has a lot of mechanics uh a lot went into that like ai uh logic for all the different conditions and so on Mm -hmm. took up a lot of time and so i would say the biggest carryover into this project is old games have a lot of mechanics that kind of trigger based on conditions and so on like stats and stuff like that so yeah this sort of complex system that lets you make synergies and different builds. Mm -hmm. We kind of have that in both games, so that's one thing that's kind of carried over on my end uh, as a programmer. And from the art department, like this game also, uh, it's not a visual novel, but it has those Hades-like portraits, which I guess somewhat reminisce of Kamifuda. And obviously, uh, Renier, who is the character artist, is uh, using all the stuff he learned from Kamifuda when he's drawing these portraits. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the other stuff is totally different, right? It's, a, it, it's no longer a turn based game. Uh, it's pixel art now, which is a whole other bag of worms. Um, it's pixel
0: art, it's a kind of a top down viewpoint for the most part. When you're coming in from an art standpoint and then you're designing this game, it's levels, it's combat, like everything across the board, what are the constraints when you go into a project like that, when you want to do something this way and then you realize like maybe you can't because of those limitations within that pixel
1: art style? I'd say one when, one benefit of the pixel art style was that it kind of makes some things easier. We're a very art-heavy team. We have, like there's three of us and I'm the programmer and there are two artists. so. When you use pixel art, it's like an easier way to sort of make the game more consistent visually, right? Yeah. Because when you have different artists drawing, if you're like using a more traditional line art style, it's a bit more difficult because you have more freedom in the shapes and so on. So that's one thing that makes it easier. Outside of that, the isometric view definitely does land some constraints and I feel it like especially in the environments, uh, there are a lot of places where we're struggling with like how how to like if we want to have soul objects and the characters got to move behind them, like how do we conceal that? Mm-hmm. Like how, how do we make it so it doesn't look annoying? And uh, another thing is that like the artist who is doing the environments, he's really fucking good. Like his stuff is amazing, mm-hmm. but it's kind of hard to do like these super amazing like money shot pieces when Mm -hmm. you're an isometric. Like, we have some really nice environments, but if this was, let's say, a 2D metroidvania, then you can always have the background, which is, like, super nice. You can draw anything you want there. But in isometric, you got to think about the camera, what's obstructing the view and how you can lay things out. And we had to do a lot of free because of that, like the the lobby in the game, uh, where you spend a lot of your time. Uh, This is actually a second version of it, because the first version had a lot of visual obstructions and it wasn't clear where you're supposed to go. Uh, So yeah, there there are some problems, there are some advantages. All three of you having
0: that art background, I would imagine it's kind of hard to take a step back and focus more on like the mechanics and the gameplay than just like making something that's visually beautiful and like that that you can really enjoy visually as you're playing it. That's got to be a little bit of a learning curve for you
1: guys, just to watch it kind of unfold in a different, I guess, artistic style. As a programmer, it drives me insane at times because it's always like, like you do something and they're like mm. this is like two pixels offset I mean, it doesn't look like yeah. you gotta <laughs> add this so much time goes into the details like mm. you wouldn't imagine like if it was up to me most of the stuff i just leave it like first thing i plugged in but in the end the game is better for it like it i, I think the artist did a really good job it looks amazing um i love how it looks it just it, a lot of work goes into that so you're in you're on the programming side of things this is a it's a
0: horde based combat game for the most part i would imagine right yeah okay so when you're creating hordes and they're all like just rushing at your your main character there's got to be there's got to be a lot you got to think about from a programming standpoint where you're trying to balance everything out you're trying not to overwhelm the player you're trying to make sure that your npcs are like in a relatively they're not too easy but they're not too hard i mean there's a lot that has to go into that so walk me through how you approach the the combat in this game from a programming standpoint and from a player standpoint. That's
1: one of the things that we kind of struggle with design-wise. Okay, so from a programming standpoint, obviously like one big issue is crowd movement and obviously performance, because I know it's a 2D game, but we're trying to target very low end machines as well. And when you have like several hundred enemies moving around, I don't want to have some kind of super complex AI behavior every tick there, right? Because it's, it would be insane. And from a design standpoint, uh, it's kind of really hard to balance, as you say, because it's, if there are too many enemies on screen, then you can't focus on the behavior of the individual enemy. So Mm -hmm. it's the basis of the genre that we started from, Mm -hmm. we're kind of, somewhat shifting away from it where we're we have more active enemies we have enemies with different behaviors and we've we've made the player uh more maneuverable he has dashes he has attacks and so on but we're still kind of struggling with finding the balance where we do want that sense of cleaning up a horde of enemies where you're like wiping them out Killing a ton of them, like, in mm. you're in the sort of cathartic state where you're just brain off killing a shit ton of enemies. But yeah, yeah, we don't want it to be super mindless, so we're trying to sort of alternate where one wave is like more enemies are kind of weak, but then the next mm. one you gotta find against a few stronger enemies. One thing that works is where we have elite enemies, which have the complex behaviors, yeah. and they're like sort of focal points for the player, right? And Everything else is just super basic, easy to kill, low level enemies that you kind of just clean up.
0: Have you ever like gotten to a point in the game where you made this horde and they're all coming at your character and all of a sudden you realize, oh shit, we made these guys way too strong and they can't get past them? Is that something you guys run into
1: a lot or uh-huh. no? Yeah, like the, the balance goes over the place over the time. Like some of some of the things because we have a demo right now. Yeah, we had it since Steam Fe- the Steam Next Fest, some of <laughs> the things in there which people are still complaining are too hard. They used to be like 10 times harder. It was insane. Like, because <laughs> this is this is a complaint we had with our previous game as well. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, usually Rania does the balance and he yep. always balances it super hard. Like it's almost I impossible. See. Like. I don't think I I could have beaten Kami Fudo without him helping me. Yeah. It's it's That's still not good. it's You're still it's still so hard. Yeah, it's still super there's still reviews and the Kami Fudo like uh, Steam page, people complaining about how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And this game We're trying to be a bit more reasonable, but still, usually the default is like Crenier tries to do something that he thinks is reasonable and it's like impossible for mortal beings and then we nerf it until oblivion for the final version.
0: But that's like a trend with indie games, I feel, because most indie games traditionally they're played by like hardcore gamers and then as indie games have become more, I don't know, accessible, casual gamers get into it and then a lot of people feel that are more casual. They're like, well, this is really, really hard. When the reality is kind of I'm not going to say is, is typical for the genre, but it's something that is widely like known by people who
1: play a lot of indie games. Because like, it's not like a AAA game where it's super market-driven, where you yeah. have people analyzing, oh, this is too hard for everyone, just remove everything. That- it, ma- you kind of you have people who play games making games and so it's, it's, you kind of lean towards that. Exactly,
0: yeah. I mean, and plus yeah. for you, I mean, it's a roguelite. If it's too easy, then you're just like cakewalking through it and then all of a sudden it gets boring. So, I mean, it's kind of like it's by necessity almost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's
1: why we have all these difficulty adjustment mechanics, right? That's mm-hmm. the cool thing about roguelites is you have systems that let you progress outside of the, the runs themselves that adjust your difficulty. That, that's probably one reason why roguelites are so popular as well because it's, it's a self-adjusting thing it's super addictive and it eventually get better no matter what you do because you're grinding i
0: feel like a lot of people don't realize that that it does self-adjust as you move and progress through the game But that's
1: the difference between roguelike and roguelite, right because roguelikes have no out of game progression it's just hardcore you get one life do what you will Mm -hmm.
0: yeah with this game do you guys have like a a difficulty system as you go in, or is it just the one difficulty? It's not like easy, medium, hard or anything like that. You go in, it is what it is, and then it kind of changes and evolves as you go through the game.
1: Yeah, right. it's not It's not a sort of... We don't have some kind of hidden difficulty adjustment system. It's mm-hmm. uh, less subtle than that. It, it's kind of... There's, there are sort of two things playing against each other. You have the base game, and then you have your meta progression, which are these items that you grind, kind of like I Diablo, see. which make the game easier, because you get stronger, mm-hmm. right? Because... Uh, yeah. Whenever you start a new run, you have stats, but if you have items, you'll be stronger from the outset. So that's the way you make the game easier for people who struggle. Like if someone's good at the game, they can probably beat it on the first few tries. If they're not good, then they can grind some items and go in stronger. So once you beat the game like that, something we have planned is a sort of manual difficulty adjustment where you can put it. like add a challenge for yourself. It's, it's going to be like a challenge screen where you, I would say you can put make points harder into it. Almost for yourself. Yeah, you, you make the game harder for yourself mm. uh, based on difference, like make the enemies stronger, make them faster, stuff like that. Hmm. And what you get in return is you get better grind. Like it sort of increases how much item drops you get and how much gold you're losing from the game. So these two systems are like, the game gets easier if you grind, but you can also make it harder if you feel like you've reached the current difficulties limits.
0: And it creates re... Ah, I can't talk. That creates replayability as well. So people, when they beat the game, they can go back and continue playing it. So that's a really
1: good idea, actually. Hades has something similar. That's our main inspiration, I'd say, for the Darkness system, like the... It's difficult. A lot, a lot of games have something, so a lot of roguelites eventually run into this because people beat it, and they're like, "We want more. We want." It's too easy. Give us more. Yeah, so yeah. we're giving it to them. So with this game, it's your second game. Your first
0: game when it released. Can you talk about kind of learning from that game's release, how well that game did, and then moving those lessons into this one as you're getting closer to your release
1: date? I, we definitely learned a lot, a lot marketing-wise, in that some genres just sell better and some games are just a bit too niche. Because our previous game, it's kind of combines two genres, but it doesn't combine them in a way that's very compelling for a lot of people. Because like a lot of visual novel players, they just want to read mm. and a lot of card game players, they just want to play the card game. I see. And those two don't mesh that well in Kamifuda. So. And the fact that like both of those genres, I guess, like the way we combine them kind of lead to a sort of niche audience. So for the previous game, we really tried to market it hard. Yeah. We were posting all the time, like Reddit threads, Twitter, so on. And by the end of it, we didn't have that many wish lists. Like mm. I've heard it's good to have like 3000 wishlists on release, at least mm. like it's good to have. It depends on your investment, but yeah, yeah, yeah. like it's it's like a Lower bar if you want to sell. It. <laughs> we couldn't point, even, right? yeah, we couldn't even reach that. We had like two thousands or something when we released. For this game, we haven't done any marketing at all, and the game like broke one hundred thousand wishes just participating in the Steam Next Fest. That's wild. And I, I guess the biggest lesson is if you have a game that nobody wants to play, it doesn't matter how well you market it. It just mm-hmm. obviously marketing is important. It helps, but it's it's easy when you're indie developer to become super invested in what you're, what you're making mm-hmm. and to be like, no people are gonna love this. They just gotta give it a try. Yeah, and that you is definitely true for some games. Yeah, yeah. There there are some games which some games need marketing because they're like hidden gems. Like maybe the game doesn't look good, or it's it really shines with the gameplay. And yep. those kinds of games they can get overlooked at first because they come out and nobody buys them. But if somebody does buy them, they blow up because they're actually amazing games, right? But yeah. sometimes you just have a game that's it's kind of both niche and it's kind of mediocre. And in those cases, like, it doesn't matter how much marketing is sinking into it. It won't really, like, it won't change anything.
0: It is tough because there's so many games releasing every single week, every single day. Yeah. And it's you need to kind of be like, right place, right time, right genre, right time. It needs to look good. It needs to feel good. Yeah. And it needs to have like an impact on players when they just see it for the first time. You know that like call to action, the wow factor, kind of like your guys' title with your game right now. You mentioned you were on Steam Next Fest with this game. You know, yeah. and that helped a lot with your with your um, with your wish lists. Was that something that you had done for your previous game and it just didn't work
1: out, or yes, it was just like we on, it, really, yeah. Uh, we were on the team like we, we did we did the same things we did this with this game but more like but it didn't mm.
0: uh, fa- I mean that's wild to me that's fascinating yeah especially it... especially the number I mean
1: 2000 I mean, that's that's wild yeah 2000 and then for this one we have over 100k and it's that's like crazy. I because I, I was hoping that by the end of the fest we will have like 5,000 wishlists. like that was mm. my big hope and then I'm like two hours like, later wake up and we broke 5,000 in a day right and it's insane that had to be um, a good day yeah <laughs> by the way you, you get used to it eventually because at first you're like oh my god we broke 5,000 lists and then it's never enough uh, Yep. yeah uh, uh, after a while you're like oh just that was just 1,000 lists today okay yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> they're like man we gotta we gotta r- up these numbers you know we got up these numbers <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's never enough
0: So, I mean, imagine if you'd spent, you know, two years on your first game, 2000 wish lists, you probably would have been in a very different place with this game than where you are right now, right? I mean, just based off of that, like logic and that reasoning, pushing it into this game.
1: Well, we probably couldn't spend that much on the first game Mm -hmm. because we wouldn't have the budget. But yeah, like I imagine the first game, like pushing its development several years down and Mm -hmm. I don't, I think it would have been a better game. Mm-hmm. but not like geometrically so not enough to sort of push that threshold and yeah because it's it's always a risk reward thing where yeah you can push those extra years but if you don't make back that investment and i'm not just i'm not just talking about money because like it's it's a time investment like spending say, four years on a game yeah like spending four years on a project that's a big chunk of time it's, it's a insane. huge
0: time suck yeah i mean you never yeah. get that back
1: with this yeah. game you i mean you've got
0: You got a lot of wish lists right now And so ultimately the question kind of shifts from like hitting that wish list benchmark To how do you get those wish lists to turn into actual like game buys At the end of the day when you do release so is there, I know you said, you know, there's no marketing on this guy, you're all just all in on development. But is there kind of in the back of your mind a, a strategy to shift those wish lists into buys and to keep them like invested in this title? Or you're just like, when it comes out, it's going to speak for itself and they're going to buy it. Kind of, what's the
1: thought there? Well, yeah, that's, that's always been our strategy, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the game delivers on what it promises from the demo, yeah, I think those wishes are going to convert. Um, Maybe our our main worry right now is uh, content because we're just three guys and kind of expectations for what an early access game is has, has shifted over the years. So people expect a lot more content nowadays from an early access game even a fairly cheap one. I hope we can deliver on that. So I, I think... It, but yeah, I think if we if we just make a good game, those wishes are going to convert. And consequently, uh, if we keep updating the game during our access, because obviously we plan to have a lot of big patches. Uh, we have a, a lot of content planned for...
0: Yeah. Uh, early Access. It is interesting because I think Early Access, like two, three years ago, people, I don't know, I think people would have had a more severe reaction to games that release and they they would always be like, oh, they're half-baked, they're not finished. Like, But nowadays, I think, I almost think it's an, an expectation with a lot of games and developers because almost every game nowadays they release. I think with like CD or disc games versus digital games nowadays that kind of like paved the path for this, where it was like, the game releases, then there's a huge patch, then there's another patch, then there's an update, then there's, you know, content extensions and things like that. And it's just something that's kind of accepted within the industry. And I think with that, you know, digital was a big part of it. Games like Cyberpunk, which in the AAA space just completely bombed at launch and then kind of redid itself, or like Battlefront 2, things like that, like massive titles that ultimately, they weren't early release, but they were full releases that had to be massively helped on the back end. They kind of paved the path where it's like, you can release a game nowadays, even as an indie developer, and it can have you know minimal content and then you can build on it. But then it's a double-edged sword because once you release that game, you never get that full release or that early access full release back. And if people fall off the bandwagon, they potentially never come back. And I think Cyberpunk ran into that problem. Yeah. So it's like, yes, you can, but is it a good idea? And to what extent is it a good idea?
1: Well, I think you kind of do get the full release, though, because if Mm -hmm. if you plan to go into early access, right, because Cyberpunk kind of, that was the full release. They just uh, rushed it out. But I think that's... After so many, like, delays, but... Well, it's obviously not the developers, it's just mostly management issues. but I yeah, was, making a making a game that huge, it just has a lot of I always a lot say
0: of places where the workflow can break. I always it's, tell people, marketers and developers, they're on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Developers are like, we need some more time, and marketers are like, well, but let's just let's push it, you know? And then all of a sudden, yeah. people are like, well, why isn't it out now? Then And the developers are like, because we know we're nowhere close, and the marketers are like, well, but we're we, we're kind of close though, right? So it's like all of a sudden, there's that weird meshing, and I think in AAA, you run into that much more than than in Indie, because in yeah. Indie, you know your title better than anybody. So you know when it's ready, when to announce it, when to push the push the market on it. Like, so it's a different ball game. It really is. But, but it is something interesting to look at and see, like, as it unfolds within the industry. And it's something that's become much more relevant within the last couple of years as well. Yeah.
1: I think with like, this is, this is kind of something I've thought about a lot because mm. like I, I used to have a more corporate desk job, I think with big enough teams. Another thing you can fall into is a sort of development hill where the productivity of the individual team member drops off so much that like, the game just starts moving at a horrible pace. Mm, I see. And a lot of, I, feel, I feel like a lot of big companies suffer from this. Uh, for instance, when when you shuffle a lot of people out for the team mid-project, I think CD Project had had issues with this where the crunch was so bad that a lot of people were leaving and they always see they have money to hire more people but it's you, you can't just hire more people it doesn't work like that like it's yeah. they replace the old ones but the new the new people aren't familiar with the tool set aren't familiar with uh the workflow and so you kind of have this amorphous mass that is kind of losing and gaining people and it's Mm. the actual development inertia is super low and the individual person can barely like contribute to anything because his workflow really drops off.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think AAA ran into the problem recently, I guess not even recently, over the last few years as well, where I think in the industry as a whole, gaming is as popular as it's ever been. I mean, it's exploded within the world market and people are pumping money into it right now all over the world. But I think as developers and programmers especially, there's not enough programmers and developers to meet that demand. So, I mean, as you mentioned, when developers leave a team in AAA and there's massive, massive expectations, all of a sudden there's the question of, well, where are we going to get developers and programmers? And, And even if you can get them, then the question is also, you know, do they have the same skill sets and abilities that my last guys and ladies did? And it's like, maybe you do, maybe you don't, you know, and then there's there's a lot of question marks behind that as well. And that's why like a lot of smaller studios sometimes will just get bought up because, you know, they have the skill set and the ability. So you're buying them for their skills, not so much their titles.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of speaking as an outsider because I've never been in the triple industry. Um, There is the fact that most experts, like most professionals in the industry retire very early, like kind of the industry is leaking talent because mm-hmm. the uh, like the conditions, the work conditions are so bad, like there's so much crunch and bad management that people are yeah. just leaving the industry forever because it's not worth it. So when most of your people are retiring, like in their mm-hmm. 30s, you're going to have a deficit of talent, obviously. Yeah, but you guys have a lot of crunch on your game, I'd imagine, too, right? Yeah, we, we crunch like crazy. Yeah, but it's different one is your but, game, though, right? But Well, yeah, it's it's insanely different because we're not kind of employed to someone. We're just a bunch of friends making a game mm-hmm. and like, first of all, none like we're not all crunching whenever you feel like taking a day off. If it's in the middle of the week, you just do it yeah. like something. Day, some days are like, Hey, let's get together to play video games today. And we just go play video games. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like I remember on my old, old job when I had to do like just an hour of overtime. Mm-hmm. It felt like so crushing, right? Because I just want to go home. I don't, yeah. I don't care about my work. I don't like. It, it yeah. feels yeah. super draining. And right now, I'm like, I work 10, 12 hours a day, and I'm fresh. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. I go Feeling to sleep good. like a baby. I don't, I don't feel tired or anything. It's, it's. It, it's so weird, it's very different. It? It's very different. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah if yeah. you believe in a project and if you're doing it for yourself, mm-hmm. your mindset is totally different when you're putting in the extra effort.
0: Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, uh, that's a great take right there. So. With this game specifically, right, you guys, you know, you're not to release yet, but you're getting closer as you get closer. This game is it is controller compatible, correct? Yeah. Okay. So with controller compatibility, is there the mindset that you want to port this game to different consoles as you get to that release date or even like, you know, post release date? And if not, you know, when you get to that release window, what platforms you see
1: it releasing on and kind of what's the strategy as you get to that point? So the controller support, I think, uh, two primary reasons for that are Steam Deck is one, because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's pretty big. And another yeah. is simply that I think a lot of people like playing games with controllers. I know I do when i've spent all day just typing away the keyboard i kind of just want to lean down on the couch and play with the controller so if a game has controller support it's like 10 times more likely i'm gonna try it in my free time that is true so yeah. those are my main main reasons i j- kind of did it for myself and for like because the Steam deck looks kind of gonna mm-hmm. be big uh outside of that we do plan console releases or at least we want to have them mm-hmm. but i don't think that will be coming until the end of early access i i'm I don't think early access kind of works on those platforms. Like people, I think for instance on the Switch or the Xbox and the PlayStation, people expect mm-hmm. a finished game. Like I don't even know if that there's true, a yeah. similar, similar setup there. So yeah, most likely yes. Um, I don't know if I'll be porting the game myself or if we're gonna like that outsource that question. question.
0: Yeah. Are you gonna
1: port it with publishers or you're gonna outsource it? <clears throat> what was your thoughts there? To be honest. I, Personally, I would prefer to use uh, like a publisher because mm. um, I just like the porting stuff. It's there's a lot of there's a learning curve there because for every platform, you got to get like a development kit, you got to set up your company there. So it's it's a lot of paperwork that I don't want to deal with. The obviously the porting itself is also work, but not as much of a hassle as these things. So if I yeah. if I can, if we can get some publishers to do that, it would be great, I think.
0: If you guys, I mean, because a lot of developers run into this thing where they're a little bit hesitant to get a publisher. I think early on in their projects because then they're worried the publisher, will, you know, will try to take over a little bit of control of their game. Maybe they'll have feedback but they'll have expectations and things that developers feel a little bit more uncomfortable with in the indie world. And then if you get your developer at the very end, ultimately, then you have way more control over your title, over its trajectory, over what the publisher is doing and not doing. I mean, doing it the way you guys are doing it, where it's later in the game, I think that is a good decision that that does pay off in the end dividends. And I mean, usually in deep games with publishers, the publisher really helps with porting and they can make that a lot easier. And even
1: localization for you guys, they can help with that too. So there's a lot of... We've actually actually talked with quite a few publishers recently, like after the Next Fest, a lot of them reached out to us. I kind of our decision so far has been to, we want to keep the game entirely in our hands for Steam right for the primary release yeah we don't want to deal with any publishers and then for the porting and so on maybe that's where we would like a publisher to come in i see yeah i'm, I'm not sure if i would be making the same kind of decision if we were like a larger team because obviously if you are like 10 people or 20 people or something where you gotta where your operating costs are very high then getting a publisher and getting that extra financial security is uh definitely a lot more worth it just in our case we're like three guys in the basement uh, our budget is so fucking low that it's uh, yeah, yeah it doesn't it didn't make it doesn't make a huge difference yeah we, and plus we kind of planned this game to to do it on our own we kind of yeah. set out with the idea to like scope it so we can pull it off ourselves mm-hmm. and we just didn't feel like getting a publisher in at this point made sense but i mean with publishers right and even with that full release talking
0: about both of those questions kind of in tandem releasing your game in the west versus releasing your game in the east versus releasing it even in you know in Europe and central Europe there's different strategies there's even different like restrictions if you're going into the east that you have to think about and pay attention to from publishing your game the audiences you're publishing to and even like the monetary aspect of that release so thinking on that what was your guys thoughts on all of those different
1: markets and all of the different behaviors within those markets. From our experience, like even today, most of your income is still kind of going to come from the US. Like looking at the other markets, obviously China is uh, a very big like emerging market. Just the, the US is so much more consumers, they just buy so many more games. That's that even true, though they yeah. have a smaller population. And, and another thing is US uh, Americans are more likely to buy the game full price because they just have more disposable income. Like. People from poorer countries, Mm -hmm. ourselves included, we're from Eastern Europe, from Bulgaria. So people from poorer countries usually buy games when they're discounted. Uh, This is even taking into account the regional price adjustments team. Considering all those things, America is obviously always your main source of income. And then from then on out, we kind of, we're hoping to, the game to like as many people as possible. We, we want to localize it to as many languages as possible. Already a lot of people in the community have reached out and offered uh, like to localize the game for free, which we're not okay with, obviously. We want to yeah. pay them. So yeah, we do want to do localization. We're a small team, so that's one thing that's kind of hard to manage right now, but I think we're going to like we have the systems in place, yeah. so we definitely plan to do the localization. Uh, we're probably going to prioritize some languages that we're more familiar with to start with, and obviously bigger markets as well. But hopefully, the game will be available in quite a few countries eventually. Outside of that, I know that there's a lot of selling your game to different markets. It's there's more there than just localizing, especially like places like China and so on, where like I'm I'm totally oblivious as to what kind of like streamers are popular there, what YouTubers and so on, and so they have
0: completely different platform sets everything is separate so yeah it's a
1: lot of work um we're gonna do it at an indie level so Mm -hmm. as much as we can hopefully like steam is a global platform so hopefully it's good enough you'd mentioned
0: kind of monetary adjustments throughout the world and i think a lot of players are oblivious to that and even the ones that know about it don't have a firm grasp on it, even me included. As you talk about something like that, when you're selling a game, go into a little bit more detail on that. How does that affect y- your bottom line? I mean, as a developer, how does that kind of impact that?
1: Uh, well, it's not like we plan for it. It's... Mm. Steam actually... Steam doesn't force you to do this, by the way. Mm. The, the regional price adjustment is entirely optional, but you gotta do it because people give negative reviews if you don't do it. So it's better to have the price adjustment there. And I I think it makes sense, especially as someone coming from a poor country. I totally agree that something which is a digital good, because like when when I'm selling a copy of a game, it doesn't cost me anything to produce that copy. So I I think it does make sense that countries where people have less disposable income can still afford games. That's actually a great idea. Uh, And it's actually a great way to sell to markets where otherwise you would just have rampant piracy. Especially in Eastern Europe here, a lot of people pirate games, but when you account for the price adjustment, which there is, by the way, there is no price adjustment in Bulgaria for for whatever reason, because we're in the EU, but let's say in Russia, like Russia, Poland and so on, and Ukraine, uh, Belarus and so on have a lot of problems with uh, piracy. Yeah. But I think when you account for the price adjustments, it's quite possible that some people like spend money for games because they get so cheap, right? Yeah, it's a good thing. You you can't really plan for it. It's just it, it's one of those things that lead up to the fact that the US is going to be your main market. You mean so EU countries, they don't have price adjustments. Actually, I think games are more expensive here because I think the euro is slightly more expensive than the dollar. And I'm, I'm not True. sure if that's yeah. the case right now. It, it used to be anyway. But yeah, like in Germany or France or, or Bulgaria <laughs> yeah. for some reason. Uh, Games are the same price as they are in the US, but they're in Euros. Interesting.
0: I never thought of that. The EU follows the same principles and rules as the US. And uh, yeah, you're right, the Euro does go up and down, but I think, yeah, that's a huge impact for you as a developer. So that's really interesting.
1: Well, it it makes sense that the games are expensive in, let's say Germany or Great Britain, because obviously they also, they are countries with a higher standard of life. Uh, I wouldn't expect much of a price adjustment there, but it's strange that the whole EU has the same price tag for games, because not every country here is like... Average person in Bulgaria makes probably Mm -hmm. one third of someone in Germany or something or at least one half might be exaggerating yeah i'm
0: shocked by that you would think they would have that for your guys country no for for bulgaria right i think in europe and even in the middle east and some african countries right now they're really pushing the limit on funding so i with your guys' country, is that something that you feel is an impact right now? Is that something that you can go out and you kind of have this community that you can
1: rely on and talk to, grow and learn from? Well, I'd say it's it's still pretty niche, but like what we're doing right now, I don't think it would be possible 15 years back or something. Mm -hmm. So for starters, the way we started making games, the game jams, like the fact that there was a game jam hosted on location in our city. Pretty amazing, right? That's mm. great. It, this, this happened when we were kids, by the way. That's how we... Uh, well, we didn't start making games there, but yeah. it really fueled our passion, right? Mm. Uh, and there, like, we're not a big hub for indie developers like some bigger EU countries, but there are other indie developers like there's... Uh, besides us in Plovdiv, there's like one other developer, Prime Games. He adapts game books to digital games. And mm-hmm. when we were starting out with Kami Fuda, he gave us a lot of really good advice, uh, yeah. which it's the kind of advice you would take years to build up on your own. So it, that was a really big help. I see. Um, if you go to like the bigger studios, there's even some of those here, like Ubisoft has a branch. There's Monts and so on. So there, yeah. there are big studios. It's not uh, it can definitely grow. So mm-hmm. but yeah, it will. I'm not sure it's about funding, grow. by the way. Yeah, I'm not sure about funding uh i think there are some like investment funds for any developers i've heard yeah. stuff like that i think the eu also does funding but that's that's a weird territory because the the eu likes to fund like cultural artsy projects yeah so it had to be making at least that's my impression. So no, you have no, to make fine, yeah. like a, a game about Bulgarian history or some some mm-hmm. yeah, shit. And yeah, yeah. Then you might get much from them. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's it. I mean, EU that's that's so interesting to me because like as I look through news feeds, I see you know the US they do fund some other indie projects, not as much as a lot of other countries, but they do do it to a degree here. I think just the biggest, most recent example is the Saudi. I think Saudi Arabia pushed like. a it was like an 80 miller no it was like 80 or 50 or some some insane billion dollar amount towards their gaming industry and it was like very very noticeable that they're trying to make an impact on the industry moving forward china's been doing it i know that smaller european countries i think like the netherlands or poland or like some of those countries in like northern europe that they're trying to do it as well and cd project red is from there so obviously like there's some incentive but i think. It's becoming more natural for countries to try to push the limit on that, to push their game development and their gaming industry as a whole, so that ultimately they get more
1: revenue back into their country because of that. I I am not as well educated on this subject as I should be. Hey, me so th- there there might be this insane grant just waiting for me that I haven't explored because yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't feel about this, a lot of this stuff.
0: Yeah, i might check we'll it out it. after this. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, right? We, we're expanding our thinking right now. Yeah. I don't, like I said, you know, th- these kind of questions, like, they're so broad and it's so hard to kind of pin it down that all of a sudden you start digging into it and you're like, whoa, there's there's this and there's that and like there's so much so much else that we didn't realize, you know, so nowadays I think there's way more infrastructure than there's ever been for, you know, tools to use while you're developing a game to just to uh, just the support base for you and the monetary base even sometimes so it's exciting it's just an exciting time to be a developer and also a very difficult time because of the competition and how many games are being released so like like I said double-edged sword there's always like that good and bad to everything so I think with that in mind with your guys game you'd mentioned localization the UI on the back end do you have to kind of plan how you're going to be doing that ahead of time? You, you you must, because I'd imagine like the US, I mean, English is very like condensed as a language as opposed to, I don't know. Mandarin is much more extensive, so you got to leave way more room for that. You know, there's all these like little different nuances and stuff and even like French Portuguese and things like that. Like there's just they're very different languages. They all behave very different ways, so. How do you approach that as a developer when you're creating a
1: game? I'd say if you're doing localization, it's good to plan for it from the start. I'm talking just from an engineering start standpoint. Make sure your texts are localized. Yeah. There's always any sound assets that would be replaced. It's not that you can't do it later. It's that it would be super annoying to you. Just a lot of busy work that you can save. Uh, like, mm-hmm. it, it is a bit annoying during development because every time you plug in a text, you got to be like, Look up the localization database. Don't just mm. hard code it, but it's it's worth the effort from. Outside of that, I can't say we've planned very extensively for languages that might be too different, because like mm. like I know that like Arabic is read right to left. Um, so like like you said, Chinese maybe mm. uh, we we might find that some texts won't fit or something like that. I think we'll just deal with it when the time comes um that's fair. best we can do best we can do right now i think
0: did you guys go in your game like we're gonna try to limit the dialogue just like so we can make localization more streamlined especially coming from like a visual novel with so many words and so much going on no but we
1: should have <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just some Next games they're game. so easy to localize you just have the menu text and yeah. you're done and, and that's beautiful <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it, it, when you're a developer you don't think about this because it's mm. you just want to make the best game possible yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. One of those things were like, would have been nice. Would have been nice if we just had to swap some menu text and then we had like 20 languages for free. Yeah. So, so ne- next time when you're choosing what game to make, when you're weighing in the positives and negatives of each idea, consider think about this. That. Like, how easy is it easy to localize?
0: <clears throat> yeah, especially nowadays, right? No, that's funny. Yeah. Um, all right, so with this game, you know, we've talked about a lot of different aspects of the industry and a little bit about this game as a whole, what should players know? Like, what's the elevator pitch for this game? What What should players know about it? What makes it different? You know, talk about that a little bit with me, the game worlds, the, the inventory system, the main character, like
1: all those different like little things that you guys are pushing with this game. Death Must Die is a sort of bullet-haven mm-hmm. lights. Which is very reminiscent of Diablo and Hades and so on. So we have very crisp pixel art. The game looks very nice, I think. Uh, we have some very hectic actiony gameplay, and we have a lot of grind. So mm-hmm. we're overhauling the item systems. Check, check it. You know, just skim through the Steam page. I think if you if you, if it grabs you right, it might just be your thing. Maybe try the demo. With that in mind, I think
0: segueing to the industry as a whole. As the industry expands, right? We have, you know, NFTs, we have esports, which has already been relevant, but it's becoming even more relevant. You have the metaverse, you have augmented reality gaming. Like there's a lot of different things and trends going on right now that are different than they have ever been, that are more relevant than they've ever been. For you as a developer, when you look at the industry a decade from now, when you look at the industry even five years from now, what's something you see that's gonna be like very impactful? on developers, on players, on the industry as a whole.
1: I'm a bit stuck in the past, where I don't care too much about like tech innovation and stuff like mm. that. Especially, especially as someone who really likes retro games, and mm. some of my favorite periods in gaming are like early 2000s and so on. Yeah, I'd say that VR... Like I, I know this is crazy because VR is kind of dying off, right? Mm-hmm. This is just a, a friend of mine's crazy idea, is that since kind of Apple is going into that, we might have like a burst of like sort of expansion in the market there. Okay. Because oftentimes when Apple goes into a new market, they kind of, uh, even though they're not the first there, they kind of build it up. So I'm not sure this is going to actually happen because I don't, I don't even have a VR headset. But there might be a period where VR he- games are kind of lucrative. I don't really mm-hmm. care to be honest because I'm still going to be making the kind of games that I like. I don't. That's uh, fair. But I guess outside of that, for indies yeah it will be interesting to see because one thing i'm really lacking right now in the industry is i miss the middle-sized studios right because there was Mm -hmm. there was a period like early 2000s and so on where you had AAA, but you had like the big studios were kind of more likely to invest in Mm -hmm. mid-sized games where you still had a budget but you were more prone to experimenting Mm -hmm. whilst right now what we have is we have this big separation where you have the huge ass triple ass game two play games yep which are just super expensive but are kind of i think somewhat soulless it feel, mm-hmm. they, feels like they're converging on one design all of them zero experimentation they're very very corporatized mm-hmm. and on the other end you have indies which are like super creative super innovative but they're just like very small there's a limit to how much you can do when you're like five guys right very so true. what what i really miss are like the mid-sized teams, like 20 people, let's say, right? Not, not a huge ass studio, but 20 people. And I, I feel like this is already happening where there are more and more studios that are kind of growing out of the indie scene where they started off small, but they have, they're, they gradually have the, the manpower and the, the funds to actually make bigger games. And that's my f- like favorite space. Cause you both have ambition and the capacity to pull through, so that's that's what I wanna see from the industry and what I'm hoping is we'll see in the coming years.
0: It's a good take. I like that. For me, I think, and this is a question to you, as well as kind of my thoughts on the industry, right now as an indie player or even as an indie developer, there's limited spaces where you can release your game. You can release it through the traditional avenues, which is usually Steam or Epic, which is kind of dying. There's not a lot of other platforms out there that you can really lean into. There's itch.io and a couple others, but down the road in five, 10 years, do you see the industry expanding where there's a lot of different platforms where developers can launch their games on? Or is that, do you think that's something that's never really going to take off because it's always kind of going to get there's n- not enough of a foothold those smaller websites and, and platforms can get where they can stay lucrative and keep going because of Steam and Epic and Itch and all these other
1: platforms out there. If we're just talking the PC market, I don't mm-hmm. see Steam losing it. Steam losing it strong. Know, know, its strong. I just think it's the nature of, of how these power. platforms work because when you have your whole library in Steam, mm-hmm. that new platform is going to have to be really amazing to get you out of Steam. That's like, fair. Epic tried this, like Epic literally threw millions, like no, mm-hmm. not they threw billions into this. Like they got so many exclusive deals. They were giving away free games and they still couldn't do steam. team. Yeah. So I don't see a small platform doing doing that. Mm-hmm. There are some niche platforms like GOG for older games and stuff. I don't think it's gonna go away. Like the, the only thing I can think of is if some platform comes along and it's offering a different service, like mm-hmm. I know s- right now you have this subscription c- style stuff like Xbox Game Pass. If something like that catches on, which yeah. is like different enough from Steam to get people on board, mm-hmm. then it might work. But other than that, I. How do you get people out of Steam?
0: And then there's markets like like we mentioned, the Chinese market, they do have Steam. I think they have other gaming platforms as well that I, for the life of me, I I don't know what they're called or how they work or anything along that line. Like, I guess it, it is regional as well. For your game moving forward into the end of this year, right? Moving into the next year even, you talked about early access. So what is your roadmap look like from here going into, I guess, even the beginning of 2024? Like, what's that look like for you guys?
1: So yeah, early access sometime this year. Mm-hmm. Can't, ha- can't say we have a super strict roadmap because we kind of just go with the flow. Not very professional of us, of course, but... It's yeah. an indie studio. Uh, Make your own yeah. rules. <laughs> what we have plans for the early access we sort of imagine a sort of stream of patches but where each each patch is kind of big right we we release a patch take some time off right where you're just bug fixing and stuff like that and then let's say in a month or so we release another big patch with let's say a new level more enemies and so on so we we just have a huge list of these content chunks that we want to add to the game yeah leading up to release i imagine we're going to be in early access for about a year but it might be more than that so yeah, I don't know.
0: Okay, do you guys already have like a third game in mind right now? It's already in the back of your head, where you're like, ah, I can't wait. We're gonna start it soon, or is it all all hands on deck for Death Must Die, and that, that's it right now?
1: Well, I, I have a lot of games in the back of my head because you know when inspiration yeah. strikes, you just write it down. But it, that's, that's yeah, fair. we're not we're not doing pre production on on anything else. Obviously, we don't have the resources for that.
0: That makes sense. I, I get that. Well, outside of that, is there anything that you would want to touch on? Anything you feel like needs, you know, discussed about the game, something
1: we missed, anything along that line? I, I guess one thing I might say for indie, indie developers listening mm-hmm. to this, because I kind of touched on some of these marketing things. There's uh, there's this guy, Chris Zukolsky, who talks about game marketing a lot. Mm-hmm. And he has a ton of free lectures and stuff. Uh, it's yeah. how to market the game, as called, I think. So that really helped us a lot in kind of thinking about how we're going to make our games and marketing and so on. So I suggest anyone check that out because I touched on these things, but I obviously wasn't very exhaustive when speaking about it.